Welcome to Mental Health by TalkLink. I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Dr. Chris Files. Dr. Files is a family physician or GP with over 37 years working in a community in Melbourne's inner east. Dr. Files actually sees several generations of patients, so he'll see, you know, grandparents, parents, and then their children, giving him an incredible intergenerational insight. In Australia, there are 17.7 million presentations to GPs that are mental health related every year. This results in GPs issuing 3.7 million mental health care plans. We'll dive into the detail of what these are. But in many ways, GPs are a key gatekeeper for mental health in Australia. And mental health related presentations forms a large proportion of their work. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink. TalkLink is a startup connecting Australians with mental health professionals online. Find out more at talklink.com.au. One of the first things my father said to me when I joined him was, when someone comes in complaining of being tired all the time, think of depression and ask about work. And it's amazing how often that is the case. My name's Chris Files. I'm a general practitioner. I've worked in the local area for 37 years since 1983, did my training at Monash University, spent two years at the Alfred Hospital as a hospital resident. And I joined my father in general practice in Chernside Park in 1983, spent eight years with him. Mm -hmm. He was a very uh, well-credentialed and experienced GP and a, a fantastic mentor for me. Coming straight out of the hospital system, uh, it's quite different coming into general practice, seeing people off the street, if you like, with undifferentiated problems. In mm. hospital setting, you've got people with diagnoses and it's all well, a little bit easier. But general practice, you've got people coming off the street. So it's a whole new world. And my dad was fantastic for um, teaching me a lot of stuff. And then, uh, But eight years later, he started to retire. So I joined a larger practice in Lilydale. 91. I've been in Lilydale ever since. So I'm now part of a 11 doctor practice with all the allied health, physio, pharmacy, psychology, all that under the same roof. So it's a lovely working environment, plenty of mm. people uh, of all ages and occupations. So um, yeah, general practice, you never know what's going to come in the door. A lot of it's routine, but a lot of it isn't. And of course, a lot of people don't realise that general practice is a full specialisation in itself. I'd like to think that. Um, speci specialists are put up on a pedestal. They are considered to, you know, to be revered. But in fact, I have lots of specialist friends who I trained with in the hospital system. And they say to me, I don't know how you can, do I don't know how you can be a GP. I, I, I don't think I could cope with it my life's easy. I know what's coming in and I have to do this operation or I give this anaesthetic. My life's pretty easy really compared. So I'd like to think of general practice as a specialty in itself. In the States, they call, call us family physicians, but there's been a move against that in Australia. I think we're still going to be called GPs no matter what. Mm. But yeah, we, we, we cover a lot of ground in general practice. So in that ground that you cover, I imagine a significant proportion of that is going to be mental health related. 
yeah, I'd say a, a lot of it, I'd have a guess, a third. Wow. So I think one of your questions would be, so what sort of presentations do you see? Because there's a lot more public awareness about mental health now, Beyond Blue, there's various websites, and of course, the public awareness side in the sports arena, footballers, cricketers, coming out and saying that they have been battling depression. And I think that brings home the fact that people realise that even someone like Buddy Franklin can get depressed when there he is at the peak of his powers, young man, earning million dollars a year, yeah, anything he wants, playing the sport he loves, and he's depressed. How's that? Mm. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, anyone can get depressed. Winston Churchill, uh, there's a huge list of people who you would never think would get depressed or suffer anxiety, but they do. Mm. And some never seek help for it, and, and some do. Of the mental health-related patients that come to see you, yes, are the majority yeah. of them there to see you for depression-related conditions? Yes. De- anxiety, depression are the big two, and they coexist in right. various ratios, oh, relationship problems, financial worries, child worries, that sort of thing, phobias, those are the sorts of things. But depression is by far the most common presentation and it can present as someone who comes in and says, I'm having trouble with my mental health, I feel depressed, or it can be, I'm tired all the time. My fa- one of the first things my father said to me when I joined him was, Chris, when someone comes in complaining of being tired all the time, think of depression and ask about work. How's work treating you? And it's amazing how often that is the case. Um, tired all the time, headaches, chest pains, short of breath, nausea. So a lot of physical complaints come in. Mm because people generally think they've got cancer or heart disease and you soon find out they haven't, it is actually a mental health issue. And I think a skilled GP will help that person realise that that is their problem. You have to do medical testing to rule out medical conditions. That would be a a no-brainer, really, to check their thyroid, make sure they haven't got diabetes and... But that's the skill of the GP. We have to be on the alert for that case that presents like a mental health but isn't. And you get a few of those. So you get a few physical medical problems masquerading as mental health. They are in the minority, but you've got to be aware of that. It's awful if you told somebody that it's a mental health issue and they've in fact got a, a proper you know, pathological process going on. But that's part of general practice. You've just got to be on the alert. And after a while, after doing this for many years, you you get a gut feeling. Sometimes people's stories just don't sound right. It's a gut feeling. It's Mm. something you you sense. And the role of of a GP is such a critical role in the diagnosis of mental health. GPs really are our gatekeepers in Australia. Gatekeeper is a good word. Yes, uh, we're often the first port of call and then we either look after the problem ourselves or we direct the person to a suitable specialist or counsellor or psychologist or whatever the case may be. 
because I think we, we learn who and what is out there and what is helpful and what isn't, because there's a lot of, there are people out there trying to make a buck under the guise of pseudoscience. Mm. And people can waste a lot of money on supplements and special tests that are, are totally meaningless and invalid. So I'd like to think that I put people on the right path where they're going to get the correct treatment right. and advice. And you learn that by creating people around you that are good people that you can trust. Another thing my father said to me early on was, uh, Chris, surround yourself with good people. So you build up a coterie of specialists, psychologists, counsellors, whatever, and you build a relationship with them and you trust them to look after your patients as you would yourself. I think that's very important because the, the specialist that you've sent your patient to is a reflection on you. So if the patient comes back and says, oh, that, who, that specialist he sent me to, dreadful, he was rude. I feel very guilty and embarrassed then. And uh, I hate that. So I find it very important to have, a, as I said, a, a surround myself with people I know and trust. I can pick up the phone and make an urgent appointment. It's all about patient management. It's not so much the clinical medicine, it's making sure that person is managed properly. And it's such an important part of general practice. So in the management of a patient, can you talk us through the steps on how you make an assessment on what the next professional is or the specialist is that a patient might go see? What are the options in those specialists and how do you decide which one is appropriate? Well, once we've ascertained the person has an anxiety or depression issue, I talk about the problem with them, hopefully help them understand what it is we're trying, we've diagnosed and how we're going to manage it. And I guess it boils down to, number one, recognising the problem. The people often feel comforted that they've walked out with a diagnosis. Oh, good, I haven't got brain cancer, but yes, I'm very stressed, I'm depressed, and that's the reason for my headache. So that's a huge step. And that I'm there to help them with it. We're going to get you better. You don't have to feel like this. So a lot of positive reinforcement. Then the next step is um, medication and or counselling. Because the people with depression that do best have the um, combination of medication and counselling according to the research. Now, then it boils down to individual choice because every person that walks in my door has a different agenda and different needs. Some people are attracted to the idea of going onto a medication straight away. I need to do something now. My mood is so down. I can't go on like this. So they're happy to go on a medication. I can tell them within three to four weeks, they should be feeling a lot closer to normal again. And that's borne out with experience. Counselling. Some people, they do not want to touch medication. They've heard bad things about it, read stuff on the internet, been put off. So they um, would much prefer to go and talk to somebody. And that usually means a psychologist. And uh, that's their choice. And others uh, will go for both. Depends, I guess, on the cause of the depression. 
some people carry a lot of baggage, emotional baggage with them for many years. And you need a psychologist to get down and sift through that and try and help that person move on or change their thinking, the cognitive behavioural therapy approach to try and change negative thinking habits, all that. That's a skilled thing that a psychologist would provide, not me. So I can provide general advice. I can prescribe medication. I can support the patient. I get them back in a month, find out how they are. I can organise the psychology appointment and prepare the mental health care plan, which is essentially a GP referral. That's all it is. It's just a letter to the psychologist that outlines the problem and it serves as a, a referral so that the person can get a Medicare rebate. It helps with the cost of seeing a psychologist because most psychologists are up around the $120, $150 an hour and uh, the care plan will rebate about $80 of that. So it's, it's a decent saving. And how many uh, sessions can someone get under the mental health care plan? Six initially. A review with me entitles them to a further four. So you can have 10 in a calendar year in, in, in from January to December maximum. However, the government have just told us that because of the COVID situation, that's been extended to 20 visits in a calendar year. So you can have your initial 10 and then a further 10 under this new arrangement until middle of next year. Because the government realised that the COVID lockdown and the restrictions are causing a, a rise in mental health problems. Yeah, that's incredible. That's that's a really positive move. Yeah, it's good. And has there been information or are you aware in that 20 sessions, do you still get six and have to go back to see your GP and get four and then six and four again? Or is it 10 and 10 or how does that work? I think it's uh, six, four and then 10. Once okay. they've had their 10, they can have another 10 on board because of the COVID. I think that's the way it works. I, I, yeah, it's, it only came in last Friday. So I haven't really had anybody that's needed it yet. Right. So you give the patients a document, a letter, which is the mental health care plan? Yes. Or I fax it directly to the psychologist. I can do that. Great. And then when they make the appointment with their psychologist, the psychologist automatically can deduct the 80-some dollars off the fee that they charge. Yes. So they charge the patient the gap. And it's up to the psychologist what what they want to charge. And a lot of them are very reasonable. If the person is financially challenged, they will reduce the gap payment, the out-of-pocket. Some of them will just charge the gap and not charge the patient out-of-pocket at all. It's up to the psychologist. So let's say a psychologist charges $120 for a 50-minute consultation with a mental health care plan uh, refunding the sum $80 they'll be left out of pocket by about $40. Is that right? Yes, yes. Because one of the questions you've asked here is what's the difference between a psychiatrist, psychologist, counsellor or psychoanalyst? Well, anyone can be a counsellor. The, the, the next door neighbour, grandma, the local vicar, but you, they would not be able to attract a Medicare rebate because they're not a qualified psychologist. Do you ever refer patients on to a counsellor instead of a psychologist? Occasionally, um, 
we do have in the area a couple of people that have set themselves up as marriage counsellors. They see couples. They've got a good reputation. They don't have a formal psychology qualification. But I've sent a couple of people along to those people for couples counselling because not all psychologists will engage in couples counselling, mm. marriage counselling. Mm. This is where your, um, your database will be helpful because amongst psychologists, they all have um, particular interests because there's some new, well, I had a, a family in the parents and the young boy who's got gender dysphoria. So he feels he's been born into, the, he's a young little boy that pretty much wants to be a girl. Mm. That's very specific and specialised and you wouldn't find that every general psychologist would be confident or, or qualified to uh, help that situation. Mm -hmm. That's just an example, that's all. But in general practice, your depression anxieties is pretty much bread and butter for most psychologists, I would think. Yeah. Well, those examples are really helpful to paint the picture. It's always very helpful to use a story to, to work through the problem. How would you decide whether or not to refer someone onto a psychologist versus a psychiatrist? Okay. I, I explain the difference because some people don't know the difference. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor who does his basic medical training like we all do. And then he or she goes off and trains in the specialty of mental health. They are allowed to prescribe medication and psychologists don't. So psychology is purely talk therapy. Psychiatry is, depending on the psychiatrist, talk therapy plus or minus medication. Psychiatrists generally would see people with mental health problems that you can't really treat by just talking with people. So those pathological states would include schizophrenia, maybe bipolar disorder, a few of those sorts of things. Schizophrenia would be the big one because people with schizophrenia have an altered perception of life and it's almost like they're on a totally different wavelength. You can't have a, a meaningful, logical conversation with someone with straight-out schizophrenia. They need medication. Absolutely. So a psychologist would not be a, an appropriate referral for someone who's it's got psychosis so that that's up to me to decide so look 99% of my referrals would be to psychologists sometimes the psychologist will write back to me and say I think this person needs to see a psychiatrist because I'm not getting through we're not getting anywhere maybe they need medication and there's some diseases I'm not comfortable to treat because I don't see enough of them and so I would refer to a psychiatrist in that instance to see if they need medication beyond just basic antidepressants. Does the mental health care plan that you talked about extend on to seeing a psychiatrist as well? No. No, that's a, that's a, a basic GP to specialist referral. So if I'm sending someone off with a broken leg to an orthopaedic surgeon, it's just a letter, would you see, John, he's broken his leg, Thank you. This would be a letter saying, would you see John? He's 
had some psychology counselling. He's not improving. He still has some serious medical issues that we're not getting on top of. Would you give an opinion as to what you think and does this person need medication? That's a standard GP referral. It's, it, it's nothing fancy. It's just a referral with the information that you uh, send off with the patient. So it's no different to seeing, say, a cancer specialist or a hearing specialist? Correct. The, the psychiatrist is a specialist doctor in mental health, but they would generally see, shall I say, the more difficult cases. Because what I say to, to my patients about a psychologist is that psychologists do four or five years of very specific training they are experts in understanding behaviour, moods, attitudes, thinking, and they are skilled in helping normal people get through a lot of life's challenges, life's hurdles at any age. Normal people. So, because sometimes people say, oh, you know, you're sending me to psychologists, I must be mad. No, psychologists don't really see mad people. It's a really pejorative term man I don't use it but um, you have to be clear that yeah as I said psychologists see you or me who right. at some point in our life might need a bit of help I, I say to people often do you know I think pretty much all of us at some stage in our life would benefit from seeing a psychologist for a few sessions I, I think we can all think of times in our life where we've struggled with something on an emotional level and probably need a bit of help from somebody outside the family that's skilled in that area. So I want to unpack that theme a little bit because you talked about the amount of depression that you see. How, as a GP, do you decide whether or not, let's say, to use an example, someone comes to see you and their life partner, their soulmate, has just died really traumatically and they're experiencing profound grief and profound sadness. How do you, as a GP, make the determination as to whether or not they're depressed or whether or not they're just going through grief? Well, I think it, uh, the, the time is of the essence, really. Um, if it's hot off the press, it's only recent. I acknowledge that it's recent and we talk about how it's normal to feel. Grief is a normal emotion. We're all going to feel it. You lose a loved one, it's an amazing loss it's one of the biggest losses ever especially if you've been together a long time so i think we just just acknowledge that it's normal they i might prescribe a short acting sleeping pill if they just go to bed and just cannot get to sleep we talk about do you have family who who in the family can you go and talk with um friends so support groups in that early stage are the most important thing and acknowledging it's a normal response and that time will generally dilute it out. Although you're always going to miss that person, but the pain will ease with time. Now, if someone comes back three, six, nine months later, whatever, and is really struggling with depression and they just can't move on, then I would say, well, do you think you need some grief counselling? Do you think it's time to go into this a little bit more detail? There may be guilt issues maybe the person feels that they should have done more for that person that died or did they miss something or didn't listen or weren't at home enough you might need to explore that if someone's got a prolonged 
the protracted grief reaction. Mm. Does that answer your question? It does. I want to ask you more about medication because you specifically talked sure. about in the event where you believe someone is depressed, you can prescribe and you do prescribe medication. What are the sorts of medication yep. that you would consider? What do they do? How do they act? Okay. First of all, I think you've got to be comfortable with the diagnosis. Like in any medical consultation, you've got to come to a diagnosis. And so there's a whole series of questions that you can look up on Beyond Blue or anywhere um, that will guide you towards making a diagnosis of depression. Because there's no blood test or scan. It's purely a clinical diagnosis. And when you, when, when I reel off some of these questions about um, for more than two weeks, have you felt sad, down, miserable most of the time? Have you lost interest or pleasure in most of your usual activities? Are you having sleep problems, appetite change, tiredness, thoughts of death? And it's amazing how often people just start nodding. And I say, does that sound familiar? And sometimes people say, all of those. Mm. I say, well, they are depression symptoms. Oh, so I explain that it's a disorder of mood and there's a lot of research going on to try and work this out. But um, the popular theory, very simplistically, is that there's a chemical transmitter in the brain called serotonin, amongst many others. And the theory is that there's a depletion of that that contributes towards a lowered mood. And so the antidepressant makes serotonin more available to nerve cells in the brain, which helps normalize mood. I tell people that the idea is to get their mood back towards what it normally is for them. And after 38, 37 years, I don't need any convincing that uh, an antidepressant, one that an SSRI that restores serotonin works, oh, I'd say easily 95% of the time. I mean, in my work, I get exposed to a lot of shonky medical and allied health stuff that is not worth the paper it's written on. But I, I don't need any convincing about antidepressants. Uh, they work. It's, it's remarkable how people come back in three or four weeks and I say, how are you? And they say, actually, I'm feeling a lot better. I am, I, I've, I've started playing golf again, or my wife says that I'm actually how I used to be. I, 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 she's got a husband back. The kids reckon I'm calmer. I, I've lost the road rage. I'm not so agitated behind the wheel. Yeah, I'm feeling so much better. And, and when you hear it, time and time and time and time again, I'm talking hundreds of times over many years, mm. you start to believe it. So I'm a great fan of antidepressants in that I see the people come back feeling a lot better and they're happy to stay on them because I do counsel them that it's, they're not addictive medications. Um, I would like the person to have a contract with me. They're going to stay on them for six months because if people start to feel better after a month or two and stop them, there's a high risk of them relapsing. They can dive down into depression again. So 
After six months, it becomes negotiable. Some prefer to stay on the medication because they enjoy feeling better. And others say, well, look, life's better now. I've left that guy that I hated or I've got a new job or the kids are behaving themselves, whatever. I'm in a good place. I think I might like to come off these. So it's purely negotiable. I don't, I just, I just want that first six months. After that, we chat about it. We decide whether you stay on your antidepressants or not. So I tell them they're not addictive. They don't change your personality. We can come off them if we really have to. Um, side effects, the one I use, I've used the same one virtually since I started. That's sertraline, Zoloft. It's been around for 35, 36 years. And I find it very reliable. It's well tolerated and it works most of the time. Occasionally we might need to change it or increase the dose, but I feel very confident prescribing it as long as I'm confident I've made the right diagnosis and that the person has depression and that's what we're treating. And I've counseled them about what we are doing and what to expect from the medication. There are side effects in some people. Um, loss of libido is a big one which is also a depression symptom so sometimes people think it's a side effect of the medication as in fact it's still a depressed symptom like libido sleep problems so mm. sometimes you might have to change or reduce dose or try and manage your way around that but in the main uh, the antidepressants work very well indeed. It's a very satisfying part of our work, really. People thank you a lot for it. And partners come in and they say, he's just, he's, this is the guy I married. You know, he's so much better. Thank you. And people thank you from the bottom of their heart. And it's one of the things that makes general practice so worthwhile. You just get so much good feedback. And from the psychologists, I've got a, Again, a little group of three or four who I refer a lot of people to, and I know that they're very good at their job and just fantastic support. Are there any other side effects other than loss of libido? Um, initially, a bit of nausea, but that almost always washes off. Oh, not the libido is probably the big one. Um, I'm struggling to think of other really common side effects. I'm amazed by how few there are, really, especially with, with um, sertraline. And how long can you typically leave a patient on Zoloft or sertraline or an SSRI-style drug for? Oh, years. I've got patients who have been on their antidepressant for 10, 15, 20 years, and they want to stay on it. Because sometimes people come back and say, uh, don't shout at me, but uh, I stopped these a little while back. I just thought I don't need them anymore. And within a few days, I started to feel just like I did all those years ago. I recognised the feelings and I thought, oh, no, I don't want to go back there again. So I started them up again and I'm okay. So... Uh, I say to people, look, there's a big, there's a stigma about taking medications for mental health problems, um, you know, because 
Well, I just say, look, it's no different to taking insulin for diabetes or um, Ventolin for asthma or your aspirin for heart disease. I said, I don't see it any different to that. I don't see it as a stigma. Depression is a medical um, disorder of mood. So I don't think any less of you for being on antidepressant. I don't see it any different. I try and try and um, demystify it that way. And answer your question, years. So, so you've spoken about the difficulty some patients can have while weaning off. Do you have any insight or words of wisdom if patients do choose to wean off? How do you transition in the right way? Okay. Weaning off medication is highly individual. It depends on yeah, the individual and, how, and the dose they're on, in my experience. So if you're on a very large dose of antidepressants, you're more likely to have trouble coming off it quickly, which I guess is logical. It goes for most things, most medications, I guess. So some people seem to be able to come off antidepressant, cold turkey, nothing happens. Others, the minute they come off them, they start getting shivers, shakes, headaches, feeling just generally unwell. And so you've got to acknowledge that and take people down more gradually. But everybody can come on off antidepressants at some point. It's just some don't have a problem, others you've got to be more circumspect with. And in your experience, have you had patients come off these styles of drugs and find that they can adjust and are feeling much better without them? Yes, um, uh, feeling much better without them. I guess staying the same without them. Um, Yeah, absolutely. As I said, depression can be a temporary phenomenon. Uh, It can be situational where it can be a marriage or work and that changes and the person's back to normal again. But there there is a definite relapse, right? I think if you've been depressed once in your life, there's a higher risk that you will relapse at some point. And what can happen is the person comes in and says, yeah, I was like this 10 years ago and I went on medication. It was great. I was on it for a year or two. I've been okay, but I now recognize that I'm starting to slip back again. It's the same old thing coming Mm. back. So those people generally don't need a lot of convincing to go back on medication, but others it's a one-off thing. And, but uh, yeah, some of the chronic depressions, I, I think, it's I don't know it's in their DNA maybe it's just they grew up in a family where one or both parents were depressed or a sibling and they'd grown up with it for most of their life and it's had an effect on their self-esteem and their whole way of thinking and it's very difficult to get those people to, to feel really well it's a huge challenge for doctors and psychologists and some will I suppose never really feel well uh, but it's fun, it's interesting um, it depends on your set point um, when you treat depression and people start to feel better they look back and say I thought that was normal the way I felt back there I thought everybody felt like that now I realize that's not right I've been depressed for years hmm. but I didn't know it that hmm. was just my set point does that make sense? I... So a Labrador would have a very high set point, always happy. 
Whereas I'm going to get in trouble here. A greyhound might have a little bit. Yeah, we've got one too. <laughs> a greyhound might have a slightly lower set point and, and perhaps suffer from some anxiety issues as well. <laughs> yes, you can use that analogy. <laughs> so I, I want to. Oh, um, uh, SSRI, what does that stand for? Uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. There, there are, like in, in therapeutics through time, there is the production of new drugs. Um, they can be called Me Too's, if you like. Drug companies are very keen to um, get into the market, and so they tweak the chemical around and then send their reps out to tell us that um, mm. their drug's better than what you're using. But in my experience, I've found that not to be the case. That's why I've stuck with sertraline all these years, despite... That's one of the most original SSRIs. There were three, and sertraline was one of them. Prozac was the very first, you might have heard that in the States, uh, developed by Pfizer. Uh, very soon there was sertraline and then there was a, a third one. My memory it escapes me at the moment. It'll come to effects all, that's right. Since then, there's been a flurry of antidepressants and now you've got noradrenaline uptake inhibitors. Uh, there are other chemical transmitters apart from serotonin. It all gets very theoretical and very high-end as a, as a as a humble gp i'm just interested in using things that work and help get my patients better so i'm not attracted to the latest and greatest because they're not always that much better than what we're already using in my in my experience can you talk to us about anxiety? At the start of the chat, you mentioned most of your patients are either uh, depression or anxiety-related conditions. Yep. What does someone presenting with anxiety look like uh, and what do you do? I said at the outset that depression and anxiety almost always coexist in varying amounts. So you can have 90% depression, 10% anxiety, or you can have the other way around. So, for example, people can feel very anxious because of these unpleasant symptoms they're getting caused by depression. So if you treat the depression, the anxiety evaporates. Oh, I haven't got brain cancer. Or you can have the other way around where the person is wracked with anxiety and the poor person gets so depressed because the anxiety rules their life. So the depression may be a secondary phenomenon. So a person with anxiety, it's my working definition is it's your nerves out of control. So every one of us on this earth is going to experience anxiety at some stage. An example, well, a, a short acting one would be if you're driving along and someone cuts you off and you almost have an accident, your heart rate increases, you tremble you're sweaty and you feel this awful sense of what could have happened and I could have been killed that's an anxiety response but when you realize you haven't been killed and that everything's all right it calms down but people with an anxiety disorder pretty much feel on edge most of their life if not all of it they worry about uh, the what if if this happens what else could happen it's going to be bad. It's, it's negative thinking. It's um, another lovely term is creative worrying. 
anxious people always worry about what could happen mm. and um, they worry they're concerned another funny thing is when you're in general practice and you've got someone with anxiety sitting in front of you talking to you about their problem you start to feel a bit anxious yourself it's almost transferred because they're they're uptight they're speaking with often rapid speech maybe a bit trembly interrupt you all the time just pressure of speech and you start to feel a bit anxious yourself and you find you're a barometer so um yeah that that, that would be a, you, that would be a typical anxiety person but there's there's other people that um, mask it pretty well um they're different in front of me than they are at home for instance or at work mm. uh, so you've got to dig for it sometimes but yeah generally speaking it, it's these people are highly strung very nervous worry about things we're seeing a lot of it now with the covid lockdown because i'm getting phone calls of people saying oh i've got this slight sore throat and oh, i had this funny night sweat last night should i go and get tested you know and they're, they're terribly worried because the media are you know, every everywhere papers television you know radio it's all about covid and mm. it's saturating us and uh people with anxiety are finding it really tough yeah of course i say well turn it off don't listen to it mm. but it's not always easy what's the treatment process look like for someone with anxiety that's, in my experience, more difficult to treat than depression because there are drugs called benzodiazepines. Everybody's heard of Valium, Serapax, mm. Mogadon, Xanax. These are terribly dangerous drugs. They are highly addictive. And if you prescribe those to an anxious person, they get a honeymoon effect of feeling a lot calmer and they enjoy that, and so they keep taking them, and then before you know it, they have a dependency. And sometimes the dose will escalate, and they're needing high doses to achieve any sort of calm, and that's not good. So the benzodiazepine drugs have to be used very judiciously because of the high problem with uh, dependence and so they're a restricted medication um, you can only prescribe s small amounts and you've got to review people and gain permits and things like that which is fair enough psychologists are very necessary for helping people with anxiety in my experience with mixed results i think when you speak to your psychology people i think they they may well tell you that they're very difficult problems to manage mm. because it, it may go right back to school to childhood being bullied at school or work um, it, it, difficult so sometimes antidepressants in higher doses can help anxiety so what we find is if someone's put on antidepressant they come back for review they may say look i'm i'm feeling a lot better but i'm still just on edge I can't I still can't relax so we increase the dose of the antidepressant and sometimes the anxiety lessens as well but not always mm. 
one of the conversations coming up for us is with a clinical psychologist talking us through mindfulness and in her clinical experience she believes mindfulness is one of the most uh, effective tools to reduce anxiety yep yeah that's gaining a lot of traction the mindfulness seems to be a relatively recent thing in in my world used to be cognitive behavioral therapy which is trying to teach people to, to look at situations differently to try and reduce negative thinking and in other words not depressed people look through the rear vision mirror of life whereas anxious people are looking too far ahead about what could happen depressed people tend to linger in the past so i suppose that the cognitive behavioral therapy is to try and change people's thinking about what's happened in the past and try and teach them to think more positively about the future look this is this is very basic. I don't pretend to be an expert in this. I'm not. But mindfulness certainly seems to be what a lot of the psychologists are practicing. And uh, it's getting a lot of airplay in the journals and even on the current affair shows and things. So, yeah, well, you'll learn more about that when you speak with the psychologists. It, it's, a, it's a more physiological thing. It's understanding how the brain works, which parts of the brain are responsible for which aspects of how we feel and learning more about that. I think that that's some of it. But yeah, again, I don't pretend an expert. Yeah, I, I was just reflecting on the fact that it sounds like a lot, it sounds like a more stable approach to benzodiazepines. Oh, the stable approach is a far safer approach. Um, yeah, benzos are, I call them, if I do prescribe them, I say they're a rescue medication. Therefore, emergencies, mm. they're, they're a rescue. They're not for long-term. I, I say it over and over again. It's not like your antidepressant that you must take every day. That's absolute, um, absolutely important. Uh, the benzos are for emergencies. If you're really strung out, if you're having a panic attack, which is the high end of anxiety where the person just can't function because their nerves are so rattled then that's when you would consider take uh, a benzo and just it'll help you calm down Mm. i mean benzos are very helpful for instance you know plane travel people with a flying phobia take one when they get on the airplane and have a bit of a sleep feel calm they're very helpful the the short acting ones for for sleep can't get off to sleep sometimes i've taken them occasionally for that those nights where you just can't settle they really help you get off to sleep and don't give you a hangover if you use a short acting one Mm. so you know for occasional use they have their benefit but if you've got an anxious patient that's got it most days then you've got to be very careful so i was reading a publication by mental health australia and they said that the three prevailing mental health conditions for australians is depression anxiety yep and substance yep. use disorders. Yep. Can we talk about substance use disorders? Do you ever see that? Um, not as much as some. Um, okay. I would see it mainly when a parent comes in. Sorry, Chris. Do, do you mind if we just actually define that? Could you define exactly what a substance use disorder is? Oh, okay. Um, well, I think it, it traditionally it would be illicit drugs, Um, amphetamines, narcotics, cannabis, but I guess alcohol would also fall into 
that, even though it's a legal drug, um, alcoholism is a, abuse of alcohol. So I suppose my definition would be, well, if you're using illicit drugs, I understand people smoke dope and recreationally at home and it, uh, in moderation and are able to pursue perfectly normal lives. I'm, I'm told that. So I suppose abuse is when you are using too much to the extent that it starts to interfere with your functioning, your relationships, your work capacity, your general existence in society. So I suppose substance abuse is the person that's it's out of control. They're taking far too much and it's causing concerns, as I said, for families and employers. The person's just deconstructing. I suppose that would be substance abuse. And in general practice, it's often the parent or, or even a sibling maybe that comes in and is worried about their son or daughter who's using or they've just been discovered to be closet drinking or smoking or on amphetamines and it's all come out. And what do I do? Where do I go for this? So that's where there are, I have a psychologist in the local area that is happy to see people with suffering substance abuse and she's very good. She has a particular interest in that. So I would divert that person if they have insight because they've got to show they have some insight that they do have a problem. It's remarkable that some people who are using these substances don't think it's a problem. They're addicted. So in other words, an addiction is where your substance takes priority over everything else in your life. It's You've got a love affair with your alcohol and everything else is secondary. So those, some of those people don't want to change. You can't help them because they don't want to be helped, which is really sad, but it's a reality. But if you've got somebody that says, I really need to get off this, I realise it's a problem, I hate it, I want help, then psychologist, it's not something I would engage in. It's not my area. I, I, that's always a referral. Is there a theme is. in the substances that you do see come through your practice? Um, a theme? Not really. I, I suppose what, what I should say is our practice is largely a traditional general practice. We, we bulk bill... Um, pensioners or people who we know are financially challenged. We, we try and do the right thing, but we are essentially private billing. A lot of the people who abuse substances are in a lower socioeconomic group, not, not all, but a lot. And they tend to go to more to the bulk billing practices where in my experience, they're not usually asked many questions. It's a in-out quick visit they're given a script by somebody who doesn't really know the person who may not be too worried about it. And so a lot of those people end up going in and out of those little shop front clinics, in my experience. We, we, mm. we don't, I, I in particular don't encourage people with drug addictions to come and see me because I'm not, when I first started off in practice, I, I thought I would take some of these people on when I was young and possibly a bit naive. And after being let down time and time and time again, I decided that it's not really for me. I realise I'm just, I'm just a conduit um, 
that's getting them their script or giving them excuse. I don't know. So these days in, in, in my world, I, I don't encourage, I, I don't have an interest in treating drug addictive people. They really need specialist help. They're often hospitalisation. They need to be rehabilitated in a, a far more specific specialised setting than what mm. I can offer. Not to mention the physiological risks of withdrawal. Well, yes. Um, yeah. Well, again, that needs to be managed either in-house or very mm. closely with a very committed parent or partner who will do it with the person in their own home and they can get a visit from a, um, a drug counsellor to the house. There's all sorts of variations on the theme, but, yeah, as I said, it, it needs to be very specialised, I think. It's a, yeah, it's a very difficult problem to crack it really is if someone is listening and they have an anxiety issue or a depression issue or um maybe even suicide ideation is a gp the appropriate next step for them or are they jumping straight onto a crisis line i think my real question is how do you decide whether or not you're jumping onto lifeline or a crisis line or whether you go and see your local gp i think it depends on your relationship with your GP. A lot of people don't have a GP, so they're more likely to ring Lifeline or go straight to the public hospital. But mm. for those that have a regular GP or attend a regular GP practice, they will usually come and see us first because we're often the first port of call. That's part of general practice. We're often that person, oh, I've just come for some advice, and it's wide-ranging. It can be anything. We're often the first port of call, as I say. So I think the answer to your question is it, it, it's if that individual has a GP that they know and have seen and like and trust, then come and see us, absolutely. Because if you're in Lifeline, they, they will often say, do you have a GP? Mm. But some people end up just going straight to the hospital and they get... I suppose it depends... Some people go get on the internet and look up local resources and they may go straight to a drug and alcohol counselling service. So, yeah, come and see us by all means, but it, it depends on, as I've said, the, the circumstances where they have a GP, they, they know. Because, as I said, a lot of them don't. If you do diagnose someone with a mental health condition and you give them a mental health care plan, yeah. Is there a red mark against their name that's going to follow them? Is it going to flag during an employment check? Is it going to flag at different points in their life? Can a prospective employer search a new applicant's health record and find that? Yeah, well, now this is where it's an in interesting point you've touched on because the government are, are trying to push through this electronic health record you've probably heard of. Yeah, my health. And unless you actually decide to not be on it and i can't remember how he did that you were given the choice at to a certain date whether you wanted to have your medical information on an electronic health record and the, the problem there could be that you go to hospital with a suicide attempt and it'll end up on your electronic health record and maybe employers can gain access to that at some point I don't know whether they can. I think it's only health workers that can access it. I'm very nervous about it. I, I 
for one decided not to go on it because the, the information on there is only as good as the information mm -hmm. you put into it. So if people say, oh, yeah, I'm happy to have my health record on the internet, but I, I don't want them, I don't want the fact I had herpes 10 years ago on there. Well, I don't want the fact that I had a suicide attempt five years ago. I don't want that on there. I don't want people mm -hmm. to know about that. So you think, well, what's the point of it mm -hmm. really? Um, but from my point of view, uh, I mean, insurance companies, unfortunately, uh, place a lot of emphasis on the patient's health, uh, mental health records, as do entering the armed forces or the police yeah. force. If, if you are an applicant for the police force and you mention anything about anxiety or seeing a psychologist once because your, your, your dog died, ah, uh, they want they will go into that and so i've had them use that as an excuse not to allow you to enter the program that's quite disappointing actually given that they are talking about uh, increasing the emphasis on mental health within the armed forces and within the defense force so it's really disappointing to hear that they consider uh, a mental health consultation with a professional prior as a, a grounds for disqualification yes hmm. very um i, I don't I don't know if it's just a, an excuse to cull the numbers a bit because I know that they're mm -hmm. overwhelmed with applicants and so they've got to have some reason to dismiss a few and if it's, oh, well, this person's got a history of anxiety or they were depressed when their dog died, well, they're not going to be suitable yeah. for the police force. Crazy because, again, look at what you just said, look at the mental health issues within the forces, huge. Ambulance officers. I, I might have to find uh, some more candidates to interview about this topic in particular because I'm sure they'll have a lot to say about mental health. In interview a policeman. Yeah. Or a fiery, a, a ambulance officer. They're under enormous stress. Goodness. I mean, much as people say to me, I couldn't do your job, I couldn't be yeah. an ambulance officer, you know, going and being first on hand to a car accident and seeing people crushed inside cars and mm. oh god or a policeman having to go and deal with domestic violence and find people who've been murdered and oh goodness me we've actually got a conversation lined up with a paramedic and they talk us through a lot of what they do and the support factors in there and you're right it's a fascinating uh, conversation i have the highest regard for people in those areas i really do uh, they're wonderful people hey chris I want to honour our time commitment. Thank you so much for your expertise and your thoughts on this. Pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Bye-bye. There you have it. Thank you once again to Dr. Chris Files. He certainly is a GP with a huge amount of experience and knowledge, and his insights into mental health was very helpful to us and hopefully to you as well. A little fact check. Currently, the Medicare rebate for a clinical psychologist under the mental health care plan is $126.50. And for a general psychologist, it's $86.15. So for example, let's say you're going to see a general psychologist and their fee is $150. You'll get $86.15 covered, leaving you with a gap of $63.85. Likewise, if that was a clinical psychologist, you would get $126.50 covered out of the $150.
And lastly, if you've enjoyed this conversation today, we ask that you please jump onto your podcast streaming service and give us a review and a comment and a subscription there. That's basically the only thing that we can do as a podcast content creator to help drive our business forward. So we'd really, really appreciate that. Thank you.